Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm your host, Sheila Hamilton, and I'm here with our engineer, John, who always makes us sound great. Thanks. Hi, Sheila. Happy New Year. Can you believe we're in 2022, John? So hard to wrap the head around. 2022 sounds like one of those futuristic years. Where are the flying cars? I know! Greetings, time travelers. Well, this is so exciting for me because we're continuing our partnership with Fora Health and we're talking about dry January yeah. and conversations with real people who have struggled with addiction or alcoholism. Fora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon that has been helping youth, adults and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive and affordable care for everyone regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Fora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details. So we're going to kick off this month with a conversation with Kelly Stromberg and Monica Knudsen talking about how we came to live in a society where alcohol is part of everything we do and everywhere we go makes it so hard to live a sober lifestyle. I've asked every person who joins us in this series to give us a little bit of background about how they came to the recovery movement. And I'd ask you, Monta, if you wouldn't mind sharing your story to begin with. Well, the short version is I spent many years in addiction, in and out of jails and prisons from the age of 16 till I was 30 years old. And through that journey of trying to find recovery and rolling out multiple times in 2005, I finally had a successful re-entry and that was the very first time I was offered services, I had housing, a peer mentor and outpatient treatment care all at the same time, wraparound services. And my recovery mentor was really instrumental to my recovery process because I got to experience what his recovery was like. And I got to build my own based on his support and guidance, which I had no idea what the recovery community was before. And, and that worked for me a couple years later into my recovery on in the free world, my first two years were incarcerated. Doug had reached out my mentor and actually had become the program manager at Bridges to Change in 2008 and asked if I'd like to help men releasing from prison and be a recovery mentor like he was for me. Through that process and that journey, um, I worked for Bridges for about five years as a mentor, a supervisor, a manager. Then I went off to another organization for about another five years as a manager clinical supervisor for peers, housing, and outpatient. And finally, we made my way back to Bridges to Change as the new executive director when the founders retired in 2006. This is me clapping for that kind of story from prison to the executive director of an organization that has grown how much? From about 40 employees to about 160 since 2015, and, and then expanded out services that match that kind of employee growth in terms of housing, treatment services, and peer services. What is the one word you use to describe that ascent? It's just unbelievable, I think. At times, I'm still in awe that I've been able to have the privilege to grow my capacity in this role, helping others. Kelly, can you talk a little bit about your story? Yeah, I used 
substances for roughly about 10 years and did the same thing in and out of jails and lost my children and family and all the things that come along with that. And I ended up going to jail and was afforded the opportunity, pushed ever so gently to go to a meeting inside the jail and was able to hear an amazing message that saved my life. And I was released a week later and immediately started going to NA meetings and moved into recovering housing and did outpatient treatment and have just never looked back since that time. I spent the first eight years of recovery stabilizing and learning who I am and doing work on me and then put myself through college. Once I graduated Portland State University, I put in a resume to DePaul, now becoming Fora Health, and have been here ever since. I started at the front desk while getting credentialing and have moved up along the way four years later, residential AC clinical supervisor. Once again, unbelievable is a great word to describe both of your incredible journeys. And this episode is supposed to be about alcohol and the dry movement and how many people are beginning to be very interested in quitting alcohol altogether. I want to ask you both, if you'd share with us, how much of a factor was alcohol in your eventual use of many other substances? Kelly, why don't you go first? You know, my story is very different, I think, in the sense that alcohol wasn't a huge part of my story. I grew up with a father who used and abused alcohol, and quite honestly, it terrified me. And so I stayed for the most part away from alcohol and then just went straight to the hardcore stuff uh, when I started in my own journey of addiction. Um, And what was your eventual drug of choice, Kelly? Methamphetamines. And how many years did you use methamphetamines? Just barely shy of 10 years. Unbelievable. Wow. That is really, really difficult to recover from. So congratulations. Thank you. I did relapse about eight years in and it was on alcohol. I think for me in my head, I was like, well, I'm not using meth, but I had relapsed because I was going through a tough time in my life and I didn't want to feel how I was feeling. And so that for me was a clear relapse because it didn't matter the substance. I was covering up an emotion that I was unable to cope with. Wow. So this brings up so many questions I want to get to later of, can you actually have a drug that you don't put in the category of an addiction? Because I know many people try to. They're always telling me about which drugs are okay and which drugs are not okay, which drugs they can control, which drugs they can't. Monta, alcohol did play a role in your addiction and your increased use of drugs, correct? For me, it was um, just out of eighth grade to the beginning of my freshman year. I think it was actually the summer. And being a teenager and a young man in Alaska, it was really the culture was four-wheel drives, bonfires, and drinking. And to be part of that cool click of folks, that's kind of what was going on. And even though I battled with not wanting to, because my older brother, three years older, had some previous history with addiction or had addiction. I really wanted to stay away from it, but I really, it really drew me in. Partying every weekend turned into every weekend and Wednesday. That carried me into other drugs of choice later, but alcohol played a key role in driving me to my eventual drug of choice of methamphetamine. And would you say that it's because it kind of lowers your impulse control ability, but it also keeps you in that social circle of people who are experimenting further and further and further? Yeah, I I would say that. And I would also just add that as an alcoholic addict person, 
I'm always trying to change the way I feel mm-hmm. and alcohol is an easy way to do that. Yeah. Just like Kelly shared multiple times of me trying to get clean and sober prior to this last time without knowing what recovery was. I always knew alcohol was my gateway. And every time I drank alcohol, I found myself back to using meth within a few short weeks. And I knew wow. this cycle and I knew it well. Monta, what happened that precipitated drug use into prison? Take me through sort of the steps of worsening need and the frustration and the bodily response to needing it really becomes almost impossible to cope with. Could you describe that? Yeah, I mean, for me, I quickly moved from alcohol to cocaine as a teenager in Alaska. Next summer, I was working on a fishing boat and a lot of people were doing cocaine as fishermen in Alaska. And it, as an addict, that just turned everything upside down for me. And then it was just the chase. Mm-hmm. And so that carried on into meth and carried me in and out of prison and crimes related to the means and ways to get more or all the drivers of my criminality and all the drivers of um, my continued use. And Monta, you mentioned that it was the one time that you were offered wraparound services that made the difference for you. What happened in all the times previous where you just let out onto the streets and you'd return to what you were doing before? Yeah, interesting enough, it was mostly just a release either to my mom or back to old friends and family. The time prior to my last release, I actually did a program while in prison. I did prison boot camp and I actually learned about addiction and I learned about my thinking errors and criminality, but there was no post treatment plan for me. There was no recovery housing. There was no peer mentorship or treatment to follow. So even though I got all the tools while I was incarcerated, you have to have the follow-up in my experience of the hands-on handoff, warm handoff to reentry services. And that's what I received the last time I was paroled. And is that the goal of Bridges to Change? Yeah, our goal is to provide those full wraparound reentry supports when someone's coming out that day. Our mentors in most of our programs are going in and doing reaching and meeting with folks prior to release, building those relationships, because we know how easy it is to get lost from the gate to your old friend's house. So we want to be there to interrupt that cycle and show people a new way to live the best that we can. Kelly, I want to talk with you about environmental or traumatic aspects of your past that you felt the necessity to change how you were feeling. It sounds to me like you were attempting to escape some very, very difficult circumstances. It started at a very young age with a lot of abuse factors and growing up with lots of trauma and trying to find ways to cover that up like most girls do, and it just not working. And then I married very young and had lots of children and then found myself alone and going through a divorce. And all it took was one person showing me attention when I felt very alone and saying, Hey, you know, let's go do this thing. And I was just like, okay, let's go, you know? And it was just a way of not being able to cope with my life with just a culmination of events cascading on each other and and building until this point where I just was unable to cope with anything at all, really. Why do you think that some bodies choose methamphetamine as their preferred way to feel and other bodies choose opioid? Because it is the body that ultimately makes that choice, right? Yeah, I don't know for everyone else. Uh, I think it's 
different. I wasn't introduced to opioids in the beginning. I was introduced to meth. So that's where my journey started. However, I have discovered that I have ADD. And what I discovered when I first tried methamphetamines was that all of the struggles that I had being able to focus, get things done, they all went away. Suddenly I could like manage my life. I could take care of five children, no problem on my own in the beginning for a minute. It seemed to check all the boxes of the areas of my life that needed fixing, at least in my head. And would you talk, Kelly, just a little bit about how the need increased? For instance, if you were, I don't know what the substance amounts are called, if they're tabs or bags or whatever, but how much were you using in the first few weeks versus how much you needed at the end to be able to have the same sort of feeling? Oh gosh, that was pretty much right off the bat for me. I know a lot of people dabble and start out socially. And for me, it was day one. From the day I first used meth, I never stopped for the next nine and a half years. But it was small amounts. We would talk about maybe buying $50 worth of meth and it would last a couple of days to, in the end, I was using three and a half grams almost daily and really not getting a high anymore. It was more about just being able to get up and function every day. And I would go to bed every night. We lie to ourselves, right? And we tell ourselves, oh, I'm okay because I'm sleeping every night. And really what it was is that I was just maintaining to be able to get up and function. I was having to use more and more and more and more. Monta, did that same progression happen to you as well, that you started with a certain amount that seemed to be the panacea of life and then very quickly you realized you could never probably have enough? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was just more, 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 more. If I had it, I used it. If I didn't have it, I needed to figure out a way to get it. But of course, there was that progression of needing more amounts to achieve the same effect. But it was always just a drive to get more, especially the transition from like crack cocaine to methamphetamines, which crack would fit this question better. uh, Just the way that how the body uses cocaine, you have to do it more and more and more to achieve the same effect where methamphetamine, it's a little bit different. Kelly, you said something very interesting at the beginning where you said, I never looked back. What would you say was the kind of change in your mindset that allowed you to actually begin to focus on recovery rather than focusing on using? What happened? Uh, That was a very emotional moment for me. Like I said, I was in jail and I was already making plans on hooking up with people outside of jail when I was released and already making plans to be off and running again. And I went to a meeting with a couple of women who brought a meeting into jail and they were telling their story and it just resonated with me in a special way, not so much in their particular story because my story looks very different from a lot of people. Um, I didn't start at a young age. I didn't have family members that used. I came from a very straight background. But what resonated with me was this feeling of total despair and not wanting to get loaded anymore. Like I didn't want to use drugs anymore. I had five beautiful children who didn't have their mother and I didn't want to keep hurting them, but I didn't know how to stop. And suddenly these women were telling me that there was a different way, that I didn't have to do that anymore. And that if I would just follow them and do what they did, I could save my life. And in that moment, it just clicked for me. That's so powerful. Monta, did you have a similar instance, an epiphany that, oh my God, I don't have to be suffering in this way anymore? I feel like this last time I was paroled out, 
at about the six month mark is kind of where I was like, oh, this is actually really working. And I, I found something that is going to last me. I don't remember the exact moment. I do remember the exact moment of when I had my awakening while I was in prison that last term, which was, you know, in prison, you try to get to the best prison in the state. So I finally made it to the best prison that I wanted to be at. And I was sitting on the bleachers on the yard and I was like, oh my God, I'm like glad I'm here. This is a problem. I really did some soul searching that afternoon on the yard of I really need to do something different. And what stuck out to me the most I'll share real quick is what my mentor had said to me when I got out, he said, Montez, sometimes you need to be willing to take action in things you don't necessarily believe in or mm-hmm. want to do. You can do that in the next six months, you have a chance to make it. You know, what you said about, I kind of awoke one day and realized that what I was doing was actually working. It's like that also with like good nutrition and exercise, right? You, you may not like it, you may not actually believe in it, but one day you start to see the change in your body and your skin and your mind. It's very interesting. I want to talk to both of you about setbacks. And I think a lot of people are starting to be completely aware that there is the possibility of relapse for people who have gone in and it doesn't necessarily mean it's an abject failure. So would you please both just be honest about your history of relapses and how you coped with them? Kelly, why don't you go first? Yeah, I had one relapse and it was rough for me emotionally. You know, for the first eight years of my recovery, I would hear all these stories of people coming into Narcotics Anonymous meetings and talking about these really rough relapses. And they would talk about relapsing on alcohol. It would blow my mind. I just did not understand why you would give away your clean time for alcohol. Like if that wasn't even your drug of choice, like who does that? It it really was mind boggling to me. And, And then a divorce happened that was emotionally traumatic. And I had an inability to cope with the emotions I was feeling from that. And so I drank. And for me, it wasn't about drinking alcohol. For me, it was about why I was drinking alcohol. It could have been any substance, but because I was picking up a substance because I was unable to cope with how I was feeling, that was a relapse. And that was hard. I struggled for a couple of days with wanting to go use meth because in my head, I was like, if I'm going to lose my clean date, I'm going to lose my clean date, right? Um, I'm not just going to lose it over some alcohol. Like that's just so crazy. But I had a moment of a moment of clarity where I knew it wouldn't just be a let me go party for a weekend and then we'll start this journey of recovery again. It wouldn't have been that simple. I knew that if I relapsed on meth, that I would be off and running and it wouldn't stop again until I ended up back in jail or prison. And I wasn't willing to risk everything I'd worked so hard for. And I wasn't willing to hurt my children again. And so I made the decision to stop and not use methamphetamines, but it was a rough one for me. And it was ego, you know, having to go into the rooms and admit that I had given up my clean time. I always laugh. People say I lost my clean date. I'm like, no, no, you made a choice. I, you know, I gave up my clean date. I chose to drink Mm. um, and acknowledging that I was able to stop. Monta, what about you? I've been fortunate this recovery round to make it through without a relapse. I did have multiple relapses in my multiple attempts to get clean and sober prior, but I didn't really have a real recovery program. There was no getting back. It was the cycle of prison and all the stuff that went along with it. Do each of you still have the urges that you used to have? That kind of, I, I hear even people talk about like 
serotonin in the stomach that's activated and the feeling that you want to use? And if so, what do you do with that feeling when it does come up? I don't struggle with the desire to want to use, but I do have curiosity over, I'm married to a normie. We call folks that are able to drink normies. I do get seeing all the new stuff out and, you know, and I, it's been 18 years for me. So sometimes they get curious, like, oh, I wonder what that tastes like, or mm. that's what that, what, what is that like? But I just, I've been through it so hard. Like, I just know for me, if I were to relapse, no matter how much growth I've made in my life, I would be back in prison in 12 months. Do you participate in like mocktail hour? Do you ask for drinks in a cocktail glass? Do you use any other substances like pot or anything like that to even take any of the edge off? No, I, do, I just hang out and drink my water or a kombucha or whatever else is available, wow. you know. Not drinking is the one place in our society where people will go, well, why not? It seems like you can very easily turn down almost every other offer of drugs, except with alcohol. People are like, what? Why aren't you drinking? Are you an alcoholic? I mean, it's very uncomfortable. It's such a huge societal norm, you know? Yeah. Nobody asks people like, why are you drinking? Or for the lady who doesn't want to have children, no one asks like, oh, you want to have children? That's horrible. But if someone says, I don't want to have children, they're like, oh, you'll change your mind. It's the same thing. It's a societal norm. It seems different and weird. Kelly, what about you? How, how do you manage being around other people who might be drinking socially or do you even put yourself around them? I, I had a moment when I first started school at Portland State. It's such a norm down there to go study at the local bar and to have a drink in between classes. And um, I had a moment of just wanting to feel normal. Like, what does normal society look like? And be a part of that normal scene downtown Portland at Portland State University. It was short-lived. It was just a curiosity, really. Um, and I was like, well, you know, that's just not my deal. I don't do the the mocktail in my head, I would think that would be too close to, you know, like pretending to use meth, but not really having meth, right? Like I wondered it, about that. I actually wondered about that because to me, it's sort of like, okay, if I had a, had an issue with alcohol, having it in that glass, maybe smoking a cigarette, then you're around people and it, it would evoke all of the other stimuli that's kind of heightened to want to really drink. So many triggers are psychological. Yeah. They're not all physical, right? It can be something that you see or a memory or a smell or anything that takes you back to. I always worry about people who struggle with alcohol use disorder, you know, drinking beers with no alcohol in them, what that does for them, because they're still tricking their brain that that's what they're getting. And for me, that's a dangerous game to play. I would never, it's risky, right? It's very risky. Monta, what do you think about that? I feel the same way. It's very risky for me in my recovery. I always take into account where I was at 18 years ago. And know that it's always just a step away. And so that keeps me hyper-focused on taking what I need to do for my recovery very seriously. Is it ever a burden to have to always think about you in your worst time? I don't know if it feels like a burden. If anything, it just contrasts all the growth because it can always be reversed. The beauty in recovery is really shined on when we're contrasting to what it used to be like. Not that we need to focus on all the details, but it is nice to see the growth that we do as, as humans, you know, people in recovery, not in recovery, people that have walked through insurmountable things in their lives. So we want to focus on the growth. That's what I do anyway. 
I've been um, interested in how many people who just drink socially have kind of caught on to this idea that maybe I'm doing this just to be part of something bigger and why am I drinking? And the dry movement has a lot of legs behind it. Do you like the dry movement? Do you think that it's healthy for people who might not be maybe labeled as a serious substance user to actually participate in this recovery movement or does it cloud it for people who really need the help? I, I don't think it clouds anything. And the more people that we can get behind a drive movement, a recovery movement, the more momentum we make at getting the word out. At the end of the day, for me, especially with alcohol, I think the risks outweigh the possible rewards. And I just think of like families raising children and what are the consequences of that child being impacted by alcohol as a young adult, even not by addiction, just facing drinking and driving, facing yeah. sexual assaults through high school and college. So yeah. if we can really model as parents that alcohol could be safe, but it also could be very dangerous. And we choose to be dry or live straight edged. We can pass it on to our kids that would hopefully have a better chance in not getting in those situations because outside of addiction, there's plenty of other ways for alcohol to really impact your life negatively. And we know that alcohol is the number one killer in this country. Kelly, I wanted to ask you about your advice or even just your observation about what's happened to your clientele and maybe just in your community around you with the legalization of other drugs. With more access to free marijuana, is there going to be also kind of a problem in the use of other illegal drugs? Yeah, that's a very muddy question. Um, yeah. It's not it's not an easy answer, right? I think that for some people, um, it's going to make things more difficult. You know, people think, you know, what we call normies, right? They think of addiction and they think of the person who's, you know, using needles to shoot heroin on the corner, living homeless. The reality is, is that addiction is so much bigger than that. And alcoholism kills more. And yet that's so normalized because our society has said that that's normal. And so nobody thinks of it that way. It also makes recovery that much harder because you can go to any store and there it is right in front of you. It's not like avoiding the bad parts of town where the heroin or the meth are, but you can't go into any 7-Eleven without it your drug of choice being right in front of your face. The same goes for marijuana or anything else that's been legalized. For some people, it has made things easier. There's an abstinence model and there's a harm reduction model. Yeah. For people who choose not to ingest heroin any longer, but find that marijuana helps them not do that. There's some people that are very successful that way, but a majority of people that will lead them back to what they were doing in the first place as well. I wanted both of your opinions on that, whether or not it's kind of a dangerous thing to think that you have a certain drug that's not going to lead you back to your worst place. Because I hear that an awful lot from people who want to say, oh, well, that's not the drug that's a problem for me. It's this drug that's a problem. It's just definitely a slippery slope. Again, I always go back, well, what's the risk and reward? The reward worth the risk if it doesn't work out? Yeah. Usually for folks who've had struggles, the answer is no. Yeah. When we look at it from a pro-cons kind of list way. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the hardest time of your life, but I love you both to just share with people how your lives have really changed since being in recovery and what your daily life looks like now. 
Oh, wow. It's just so different from the way it used to be. You know, I successfully raised five children. The last two are off deploying in the military right now. They're 19 and all the older ones are off and doing their thing. So I feel that's a huge success. Some of them grew up in the middle of our addiction, uh, their moms and mine, but uh, they've also seen us grow and grew up in the rooms of 12-step recovery. So I think that out of everything, that's like the number one thing is seeing that we were able to raise humans mm. and set them on their path. Recovery allowed us to do that. Um, their mm. mom and, I, and just building a life to like be my authentic self. I've had many versions of myself mm-hmm. in my recovery and the last two years has changed from where it was five years ago. So I continue to grow. I continue to be the human I, I want to be by the world just showing itself to me and I get to follow those things. And so yeah. it's really a good place. It's beautiful. Kelly, what about you? Were you able to be reunited with your kids? Yes, I was. Most of my children grew up during my addiction. I have five children, four are grown. My last is 17, just graduated high school. And so I've been able to be present for most of his childhood. You know, the the greatest part for me is helping unite parents with their children and give back in that way because I feel like I created so much damage with mine and always making up for the damage I created during their childhood. But I get to be a grandmother today to amazing grandchildren. They are a huge part of my life. I work entirely too many hours, but when I'm not working, I'm playing with my grandchildren and I'm camping and I'm, I'm just loving life. You know, I'll tell you, I went camping and I was sitting in a camping chair in the middle of this river, just enjoying the sun and the running water and the kids were playing on the shore. And there's this moment of just feeling like I've arrived, right? Like I've arrived to this beautiful place. I'm a productive member of society. I'm living my best life. I'm no longer hurting society. I'm no longer hurting people. I'm no longer damaging children. I'm actually helping to raise my grandchildren. And it was a beautiful moment of just feeling totally at peace within myself because I have moments still, I don't know about Monta, but I still have moments where I feel like I'm not good enough. Right. Or um, if they really know who I was, then I wouldn't be in this position. I have, we call that imposter syndrome. Often I'll think, oh my gosh, like where I come from, like, do they really know who I am? And, but I have these moments of clarity where I'm like, no, I, I have fully arrived and come full circle and I have a lot to offer and I help build society up instead of tearing it down. I just read this thing the other day that said the most important relationship you'll ever have is you, the one with yourself. And you just described that so beautifully, that transition from self-hate and self-loathing and all of the things you do that gets you into addiction in the first place that you can actually overcome that, that you can actually move beyond it. It was just beautiful, Kelly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Monta, what kind of advice do you have for someone who's thinking, you know what, I want to try out this dry, dry movement thing. I, I, I'm actually, I'm game. Yeah, I would just say be open to the idea and yeah. reach out and maybe find others who might be doing similar things. My wife is a normie, but two years ago, she decided to try she would do dry January off, you know, she did it for a few years yeah. and then um, she's not in recovery, but she just celebrated two years sober. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tried to get her to celebrate. That's really awesome. 
Kelly, unless you have something to add, I just want to say you two are among the most inspiring people I've ever talked to. And I've spent my whole adult career talking to really inspiring people. The enormous obstacles you overcame both physiologically and mentally and spiritually and emotionally to be where you are today. And so incredibly beautiful to sit with you and hear your stories. Thank you so, so much for spending the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been an honor, really. We are going to link this podcast with a lot of resources for anybody who has um, decided that they are willing to kind of look at Dry January and maybe continue on as Monta's wife did. We're also continuing this conversation throughout the month and I really want to thank our partners at Fora Health for sponsoring this content and also being available even through the pandemic. They were available 24 hours a day. Once again, we will also put a link to Bridges to Change, uh, Monta's incredible organization helping people who have just been released from prison. Yeah, so our prison release is just part of what we do. We also anybody that can come through our door. Wonderful. Thank you again, Kelly and Monta. I am so appreciative of your work and just your place in the world. It really means so much to me to, to know you. Bye-bye.